Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Pop quiz. All right, I'm ready. What is the highest number of points a single player has scored in a game in NCAA Division I basketball history? Mm, I'll say about 63. No, there's got, you've got a whole lot of folks who've scored over 60. I'll tell you who number two is. Okay. With 69 points is Pistol Pete Maravich. Wow. All right. So let's go. I'm just going to guess and say 78. 72 points by Kevin Bradshaw, January 5th, 1991. Yeah, there's no way I would have got that. I don't have a clue who that is. I don't either, but I just thought if anybody might know it, it was you, and you didn't. So No, I didn't. I'm sorry to disappoint. That's okay. I guess I'm going to start the episode now. All right, bud. We'll talk to you later. Okay, see ya. Bye. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 3, Episode 1, French for Incompetent. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, January 5th, 1991. Hello friends and welcome to a brand new season of 30 Pop. It feels like just last week we were wrapping up our Season 2 review of 1990, and here we are, already diving into 1991. How the time flies. I'm very excited to spend the next 52 weeks looking back together at yet another super nostalgic year in our collective past. And as always, I'm so thankful to have you riding shotgun for the journey. We'll start the new year much like we ended the last one, with Vanilla Ice's To The Extreme as the top-selling album in the country for the ninth consecutive week. George Strait's I've Come to Expect It From You is the number one country song in the country for the fifth and final week, and Father MC's I'll Do For You at the top of the Billboard Hot Rap chart for its third and final week. At the top of the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart this week in 1991 was Freddie Jackson with his song Love Me Down. top song in the Billboard Hot 100 this week to kick off the new year, despite or perhaps because of the controversy surrounding it in the final months of 1990, was Madonna's very provocative, sex-forward, almost melodyless single, Justify My Love. Wanting. Needing. Waiting. For you to justify my love.
The song was the lead single off Madonna's first greatest hits album, The Immaculate Collection, and despite being a complete departure musically from Madonna at the time, has since proven to be one of the defining songs of her career. It was co-written and produced by rock legend Lenny Kravitz and was the subject of a fair amount of controversy even before the music video began being banned from all the major television networks. It was originally recorded by artist Ingrid Chavez, a protege of Prince, and an apparent admirer of Kravitz, as the lyrics were written as a poem for him. When the single was released, only Kravitz and Madonna were listed as co-writers, Madonna having modified a single line from the song, and Kravitz having written the song's hook. Chavez filed a lawsuit against Kravitz, which settled out of court and included her being listed as a co-writer as well. Kravitz also sampled the drum sounds heard in the song from Public Enemy's instrumental Security of the First World which had already been sampled from James Brown's song, Funky Drummer. He did so without consent, which isn't technically illegal, I don't think, but is certainly frowned upon in the music industry. Regardless, the song was a major success and wound up setting the tone for Madonna's next album, 1992's Erotica, which had several songs featuring similarly breathy, spoken rather than sung lyrics. You can check out the controversial music video at the link in the show notes for this episode if you're so inclined. In sports news this week in 1991, besides the 72-point game by college basketball player Kevin Bradshaw I mentioned in the opening call, the great one himself, Wayne Gretzky, made hockey news in the LA Kings 6-3 win over the New York Islanders when he became both the youngest and fastest player in NHL history to score 700 career goals. He did so 23 days before his 30th birthday and in the 886th game of his career. Incredibly, he was also the fastest and youngest to reach 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, and 800 goals, and the youngest to reach 100 goals, which he did only 40 days after turning 20. I've included a link in the show notes to a Wikipedia article about all the many achievements from Gretzky's career. I've never really cared one way or another about hockey, but this list is truly remarkable. I definitely recommend giving it a look. In television this week in 1991, we saw the mid-season network premiere of the very 90s NBC sitcom, Blossom. Don't know about the future, that's anybody's guess. Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed. Buy up your pad and pencil, I give you a piece of my mind. In my opinion, nation, the sun is gonna surely shine. Stop all your fussing, slap on a smile, come out and walk in the sun for a while. Don't fight the feeling, you know you want to have a good time. And in my opinion, nation, the sun is going to surely shine. The pilot for this show originally aired in July of 1990, but there was another very similar series that debuted on Fox that fall also starring Blossom actress Mayim Bialik in the leading role, entitled Malloy. That series, which also featured a young Jennifer Aniston, by the way, only lasted for seven episodes due to low ratings. So once it had failed, NBC moved forward with Blossom, changing a couple actors out and changing Joey Lawrence's character's name from Donnie to Joey. The show was a huge hit and featured cameos from countless 1990s celebs, some of whom have guested on 30 Pop, in fact. And I was a loyal fan, if for no other reason than the huge crush I had on Blossom's BFF, Six Lemure. A fun show that I'm sure will come up again over the next few years on 30 Pop. In Hollywood, it should come as no surprise that this week in 1991, the top film at the box office was, once again, for the eighth consecutive week, Home Alone. 
It was my great pleasure a couple weeks back to hop on a call with actress Angela Gothels to talk about her time on set playing the role of Kevin's older sister, Lenny McAllister. I don't know how to pack a suitcase. Hey, I hope you didn't just pack crap, Jeff. Shut up, Lenny. Do you know what I should pack? Well, it's told you, cheap face. Toilet paper and water. Listen, Kevin, what are you so worried about? You know Mom's going to pack your stuff anyway. You're what the French call les incompetents. What? I had a whole lot of fun chatting with Angela, so once again, I want to share our conversation with you almost entirely unedited. Enjoy. Angela Gothels, welcome to 30 Pop. It's so fun to have you on today. Thank you, Luke. I'm so happy to be here with you. So 30 years ago right now, you had the number one film in the country, and that's not because there was no competition. There were amazing movies releasing throughout that time, and y'all continued to just crush it. Tell me what that was like as a young actress. I have to say, before the film came out, when my family and I would tell folks what the movie was about, the overwhelming response was, okay, that's dumb. That would never happen. And uh, okay, like, I guess we'll see your movie and like, see what it's like. But, you know, it wasn't, the hook was not immediately apparent to people when we described what actually happens in the movie Mm -hmm. and the storyline. So going into the release of the film, I feel like, for me, I I was just kind of like, this was one of my favorite things I'd done so far and continues to this day to be one of the best jobs I've ever had. It was like summer camp for me personally. (laughs) It was a lot of work for a lot of folks, but it was just super fun. And, you know, based on the reactions from people leading up to the movie's release, I was kind of skeptical about how it would be received, but I knew that I had had a blast doing it and I loved the movie and I loved everybody involved. So I was like, well, you know, we'll see. So I was surprised, frankly, that it had the, you know, the audiences sort of loving it and that it continued to draw a crowd for that whole time. And, you know, in the holiday season, it was just really exciting, surprising, I would say. And it it felt really gratifying to be a part of something like that. You know, when I would go to school for a while, I was the home alone kid. And I'm sure that all of, you know, like Mike and Devin and obviously Mac, you know, I'm sure they were the home alone kid in their school. I'm sure, yeah. But it was it was like a being on a rocket ship. It was amazing. I can only imagine. I would have loved to have been known as the Home Alone Kid in my in my <laughs> life because I. So this movie came out. It was right around my eleventh birthday, like within a day or two of my eleventh birthday. So I always just really really resonated with Macaulay Culkin. I thought he was amazing. I thought you know I loved him in Uncle Buck. One of the things I noticed when I was getting ready for this interview is this wasn't your first time working with Macaulay Culkin. That's right. So Mac played my little brother in a film called Rocket Gibraltar, mm-hmm. uh, starring Burt Lancaster. I think it was, if it wasn't Burt's last film, it was one of his last films. Mm. And yeah, Mac played my little brother. It was a beautiful script written by Amos Poe, um, who's a gifted writer. And um, it, it's a family story uh, kind of looking at, at 
loss and death from the perspective of a bunch of kids who come to uh, Sag Harbor for their grandfather's 77th birthday and then, you know, end up sort of contemplating uh, losing him and then, um, spoiler alert, end up navigating that loss in sort of a uh, beautiful kind of disturbing way. childlike way. The title of the movie comes from, uh, so the kids find this old shipwrecked boat on the beach and uh, they see the words rock and then two blank spaces and then Gibraltar. And it's obviously rock of Gibraltar, but they don't know that. And being kids, they're like rocket, obviously, (laughs) because what other word could it possibly be? So they go about fixing up this boat because of a story that uh, their grandfather has told them about Viking funerals. It's a, it's a, it it didn't get a whole lot of attention uh, when it came out, but I still have people that have seen the movie and, and were kind of stunned by the beauty of it and the way that it talks about death and loss. And so, yeah, Mac and I worked together. He was, I think, six and I was 10. And that was our first movie together. And then we got to play again uh, in Home Alone. That's amazing. So I'm curious how it actually works because I see this a lot in Hollywood, but I'm not in any way in that world other than doing occasional interviews with folks like you. So, but one of the things I noticed was, so you're in that with Macaulay Culkin, y'all are both in Home Alone together. You are in Phenom with the dad. What's the dad's name? He's also in 24. Oh, Bill Devane. Bill Devane. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) so I'm curious how this works where we see actors who sort of pop up in movies together repeatedly. Do you know what I'm talking about? How does that like, so I guess my question is, was the Home Alone connection through knowing Macaulay Culkin or was that just a coincidence that you get booked again playing siblings? You know, being on the acting side of things, I can't entirely be sure But my assumption is that I don't think that they sought me out for Home Alone because I had already worked with Mac. I'm fairly sure that they didn't. I auditioned for the movie. Mm -hmm. But I think that they probably recognized that there was a a history, a chemistry that that comes from um, having worked together before, um, there's like a, a comfortable, you know, kind of familial quality, which I did have with Matt by the time we got to Home Alone, because we had worked on a movie where we were all living in this little motel in Long Island for, you know, a couple months of shooting this film. Um, so, you know, we did, we were comfortable together. We knew one another. And as far as that goes with other projects that have, you know, paired people uh, who have worked together in the past, I think that it's probably more of a coincidence initially, but then when they're going about casting, whatever the project, if there is a history between two actors, if they have worked together it's a little bit less that you have to do to create an organic sense of connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's, you get that throughout every scene that you all have together or really any of the siblings and siblings and cousins, all the kids that are in the movie, there really is, even while none of you really look alike, yeah. 
you don't you don't all look like siblings, but like you totally interact like siblings. And so that's that amazing suspension of disbelief that they're yeah. like, you know, they just are asking you to believe that we're all from the same family. Yeah, there's some <laughs> wild DNA happening there. Exactly. So I'm curious with you in particular, I saw on your IMDb or Wikipedia or somewhere that you have a degree in French, which I think is really interesting since you speak French in the movie, you go to France in the movie. Did you bring that into the movie? Was there already some French in your background or did the French degree follow all of this exposure? That's such a great question. I had definitely studied French in school by the time I got to Home Alone. I think, I mean, I was in junior high school, fairly sure that I was taking French at that time. So I knew how to pronounce I knew how to say les incompetents. Mm -hmm. As far as being a French major in college, I think by the time I got there, I'm not sure that I was aware of any kind of groundwork that had been laid by, you know, the movie Home Alone. But I definitely, I mean, I think I always loved the French language and it's an interesting sort of full circle moment or or just sort of the randomness of the, of the universe mm -hmm. kind of like landing and making sense. I love it because it's one of those things that if there were to be fan fiction written about what happened to all of the McAllister kids. That's what Lenny would have done. She would have had a degree in French and maybe gone on to be a theater actress. I can just I, I see I cannot it. disagree with you. And actually, <laughs> I'm going to totally embarrass myself, but, you know, I'm past the point of caring. <laughs> we, we welcome that on this show. I, so. <laughs> so when, what was it? What ad campaign had those commercials? Oh, I think it was for Google, right? Google, the Google Home stuff. Yeah. Yeah. When Mac was as an adult, you know, amazing. Kind of, I just watched those again yesterday. They're so funny. I love those commercials. Whoever came up with that brilliant, they're really well done. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, like Linny needs to be in one of these commercials, like being a total snobby French speaker. Yes. She's probably moved to Paris and like has a beautiful apartment, like overlooking the Eiffel Tower and, you know, just kind of comes in and starts rattling off something in French and, yeah. and Mac has to like Google what like translate, you know. Yes. So that was my pitch to my manager. And she was like, actually, we already called them and they're like, <laughs> we're not doing that right now. We're just concentrating on, you know, on Macaulay. So I get it. No, no biggie. But I totally agree. I think that Linny is living her best life in, in Paris. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about your career following Home Alone. So y'all had just stopped being the number one film in theaters when the film V.I. Warshawski came out. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So we'll be talking about it in, I think it's July of 91, because like I said, we take this one week at a time looking back. And so we're going to talk about it. I may hit you up again for another interview. Awesome. But, but what was it like to have just sort of left the box office to go right back in in July? You know, there there was, I think by that point, a, a real sense of momentum. You know, my, my mom and my sister and I sort of we're navigating this in real time. And it was definitely overwhelming. It had a, a life and an energy of its own, I think. And, you know, it, it, it was exciting. I mean, my mom did her best to, to try to balance that with, you know, the realities of being a kid and going to school and sort of maintaining friendships and, and doing homework and stuff like that. So it did have this kind of like otherworldly quality, but for the most part, it was just, you know, it, it was gratifying. It was exciting. It was something that, that I was proud of and kind of in my private moments and sort of really aware of not, you know, being obnoxious about it and in, <laughs> in the outside world. Um, 
yeah, it, it, it was a gift. I mean, it, it felt great. I love it. So you did not come back for Home Alone 2. What was the story there? Was it other projects or like, why did you not return as Lenny? So it's so funny because I got a text message recently from a friend of mine who's also a fantastic actor, um, actually the youngest Tony Award winner ever. Wow. Um, and uh, she just texted me randomly out of the blue and said, why weren't you in Home Alone 2? <laughs> and I was like, um, hi. And she was like, oh yeah, hi. <laughs> It's all good. Um, so it, there's nothing scandalous about it, although I think sometimes people create like the idea that there may have been something. But honestly, my mom at the time, I think, you know, going back to what I was just talking about in her kind of sometimes desperate attempt to keep things relatively normal for me and my and my sister and mm-hmm. and and kind of keep our our family um sort of grounded, decided when Home Alone 2 came around that to uproot our family, to leave school, to kind of absent ourselves from our lives for uh, such a big chunk of time. At that point, you know, I was older. I was, I think, either in high school or about to be. And I think she just thought that the benefit was not as great as the possible harm. I mean, harm is a strong word, but, you know, just the, the uprootedness and the, and the kind of chaos that that could create. Now, she asked me at the time, like, are you okay with this? I mean, she didn't just decide this, you know, without my participation. Sure. And, you know, I have to say, <laughs> I've talked to some of my, my co-stars from Home Alone, you know, my, my cousins and in, in the movie and uh, siblings, and they all had such a blast doing the second movie. <laughs> and like, they try not to rub it in my face that it was so much fun, but I know that it was. And so in retrospect, I'm, you know, more than a little disappointed that we didn't join in the fun. And, you know, to be honest, the residuals wouldn't be bad either at this point. Um, So I have my regrets about that. Mm. Um, And I respect my mom making the decision that she made at the time. I, it couldn't have been easy. And again, I, in that moment sort of went along with it and, and kind of agreed with her, but yeah. It's like retroactive FOMO. Yeah, exactly. That's a bummer. I'm sorry to bring up something that's less than happy, but (laughs) you are the memorable Lenny. You are the Lenny that people remember. So thank you. Well, I feel like they tried to do, and this is a, 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 a sort of wild coincidence. I actually went to college with the original Becky from Roseanne. You're kidding. No. Wow. <laughs> At, you went to and Vassar? I went to Vassar, okay, yeah. 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 So she and I have like sort of a connection there in that, you know. Being replaced. They, they tried to just like pretend that nothing was different. Oh, yeah. And people were like, um, so, <laughs> That's amazing. so I think that they did a great job. I mean, the, you know, from what I hear, Lenny number two was cool. Not as cool as me. Right. Cause they have to say that. Um, but, <laughs> I bet she has I, normal, like blonde hair today. She probably yeah. doesn't have, you know, <laughs> she doesn't have pink hair. She's right. not rocking pink hair. Um, but, uh, but I think that they, you know, I think that the, the producers and the, and the production staff did their best to kind of, you know, not draw attention to the fact that it was someone different. And honestly, most people don't know that it's not me until they like really take a second look and they're like, Oh wait. So I think they did a good job of kind of seamlessly uh, doing that. Yeah. (laughs) 
So I do want to talk real quick. So you, you ended up landing your own show where you were the star. This was you were the, the focus of the show. The show's phenom. You play this really bright, really talented tennis player as a, like, like a high school kid. And right. I'm, I'm really curious about how that role might have resonated for you because you were also clearly getting to have a lot of attention as a girl that age as an actress. And I'm just curious, I've kind of always wondered that with people who are very successful, but especially that role where you are this character who gets a lot of attention for her talent and ability. And I'm just curious, like what your experience was with that? Did that feel like a particularly resonant role for you? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And actually the story behind Phenom, at least, um, from a uh, development standpoint, is that one of the show's uh, creators, Jim Brooks, actually saw me in a play in New York. It's a beautiful play by Tina Howe, the brilliant Tina Howe called Approaching Zanzibar at the Second Stage Theater. And, And he saw me in that show. And I guess it resonated for him. I I think there was something there. There was a kernel of an idea. And um, in any case, he he, uh, went to work developing Phenom with that idea in mind that you bring up of someone. And we were kind of just talking about it, like what my mom was doing. Mm -hmm. There's a single mom, Judith uh, Light, in in Phenom, raising her kids and and kind of navigating this other world uh, with her daughter and trying to create some sense of balance, trying to have a life for herself, trying to give all of her kids, you know, the love that, you know, (laughs) that that they need and and sort of the the space to, to follow their own path. And it, so there were a thousand points of resonance in that uh, project for me. And and I think that's what Jim was looking at, you know, that the show kind of tapped into that idea of, I think Jim used the phrase art imitating life and, and life imitating art in some way, and just what that balance was. And that definitely, you know, encapsulated what those years were for me, hmm. you know, going to high school during the day and, performing at night and going home and doing homework or writing a paper and kind of trying to be fully present in both those places and spaces, you know, and be there for my family. And my family was incredibly supportive. My sister, you know, kind of went along for the ride in a lot of ways. And I'm incredibly humbled by that. So yeah, I mean, Phenom was, uh, it was obviously a great honor for me. And it was also kind of instructive in real time and an opportunity to sort of live out what I was actually feeling, you know, in an artistic kind of way. So it was, it was good therapy. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, and so you've done film, you've done TV and you've done theater. Do you lean more towards one or the other? Do you enjoy one more than the others? I think that they all sort of exercise different muscle sets and, and kind of highlight different parts. I started in theater and I think that I'm continually drawn back to theater. I think that theater um, kind of is the most complete uh, marriage of all the different parts. Mm. Um, you know, physically you're, you're kind of, your, your whole body is there all the time on stage, moving real things and, and doing real things. Um, there's no stopping and starting. If you mess up, you just keep going. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it sort of gives you this, um, 
completed arc every time you perform. Mm. So I think as it's almost like theater for me is like the, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, of a good metaphor. It's like the Iron Man or the, the, I don't know, like the, the one that you, where you, where yeah. you, you use all your tricks, all your stuff. And then at the end of it, you're kind of done and then you, you do it again the next night. But, you know, I think that film, you know, allows you to be smaller, obviously, and uh, requires you to be smaller. And television, similarly, we shot Phenom in front of a live studio audience. So wow. that was an interesting marriage of theater and, and TV. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have a favorite, but I think that theater, you know, because I grew up in New York City, that's kind of where I started and that's where I keep coming back to. <laughs> I think that's that's so interesting because I've never really thought about, and I love that language of it makes you be smaller, but I, I've never really thought about how much harder the work must be in theater, where in TV and film, the goal is really to get it right one time, to get it perfect one time. And in theater, it is to get it right every time, yeah, over and over and over, like to not miss. And that that's, right. seems like a lot of pressure, but... It takes a lot of stamina too, but unlike film and television, you're kind of carried by the momentum of mm -hmm. the piece that you're doing. So, and because you can't stop, there's an energy there that can kind of carry you through. Hmm. Um, with film and television, it's, it's, as you said, you're kind of trying to like, you know, distill everything to one perfect take. And yet every time you have to try to get back there. So you, when they yell cut, you kind of, you know, reset and then you, you go again. Um, whereas yeah, in theater, you, you don't have to reset um, or you do have to, but it has to be in the moment you have to do it in front of everybody. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so there's no like, you know, there, there's no private moment. There's no moment before it's like, if you, if you stumble on a line, if you drop a prop, if you, whatever happens, you know, that's where the show must go on kind yeah. of comes from. It's like, you know, you, you just, uh, are, are kind of carried by the energy. It's really interesting. I mean, the, the older that I get and the longer that I've been lucky enough to be in this business, you know, the more I can see kind of the mechanics of it. When we did uh, certainly when we did Rock of Gibraltar and Home Alone and, and, you know, when I was acting as a kid, there was a lot more instinct at play and a lot less uh, intellect. Mm. And now I feel like there's, I think the danger is that, the, you know, you can overthink it. And when I went away to college, that was kind of my time to, I mean, it was partially choice and partially that I sort of stepped back and, the business was like, well, okay, like, we're not going to wait for you. And I was mm. like, okay, I think I'm cool with that. Am I cool with that? Yeah, I'm totally cool with that. Um, <laughs> like that was the conversation happening. But for me, like those four years of college allowed me to parse out that balance between instinct and intellect and, and really work it out. Like, so that I wasn't overthinking and that I was still trying to access like what was already there and what was instinctual, but just mm. kind of, you know, laying a little craft around it and kind of bolstering it um, with mm. some foundational stuff. And yeah, that's really, really interesting to hear, especially as someone who has had the experience of acting as a child and as an adult, you know, on you've, you've been on both sides of that experience of college, you've been an actress. And so I'm curious, like, 
and maybe this isn't a question, maybe I'm just thinking out loud, but what the experience is like now to access that instinct that used to just be there and be present. And, but like you said, to balance that with the intellect and, and uh, I like how you said you, to sort of support it with some craft, yeah. you know, to build some craft around it. That's, yeah. that's fascinating, but thank you so much. And thank you for being a part of one of my absolute favorite movies. Certainly my favorite Christmas movie. That is so sweet, Luke. You've been wonderful. You've asked awesome questions and honestly talking about home alone is like, you know, looking through a family photo album for mm. me. It's like going back on a very, you know, sweet, fun, exciting time and a part of, of my, you know, childhood and past. Um, not everybody who was involved might agree with me on that. I'm, I'm sure it's complicated in, in a lot of ways for a lot of folks, but yeah, I've loved talking to you. You're sweet and smart and that's the best combination of things. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> no worries. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Angela. We'll talk to you again down the road. Thanks, Luke. Be well. <laughs> you too. Bye everybody. can't even tell you how fun it's been to get to interview all these cast members from this movie I've loved so much for so long. Huge thanks to Angela for being a part of this episode, and thanks again to the other cast members who participated in recent episodes of 30 Pop. Devin Rattray, who played Buzz, Michael Morona, who played Jeff, Jerry Bamman, who played Uncle Frank, and Larry Hankin, who played Officer Balzac. It's been an absolute joy to meet each of them, and I look forward to bringing them back when we cover Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, in Season 4 of 30 Pop. If you want to help make sure that Season 4 of 30 Pop actually happens, then please share this show with a friend, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, and consider partnering with me on Patreon to help cover the costs of producing this and other Milieu Media Group podcasts. This is very fun work, but it is work, and it does cost lots of time and money. If you enjoy this show and can spare a dollar or five or ten each month, then just click on the Patreon link in the show notes and join the neighborhood we're building over there. As always, huge thanks for listening to the show. Really, I appreciate it so much. I hope you'll join me again next week as I chat with one of the early 90s most memorable names and another pretty serious childhood crush of mine. Until then, remember, poor is the man whose pleasures depend on the permission of another. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Brauner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To hear more shows from Milieu Media Group, visit milieumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share on the air, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com.